Hello, hello, boys and girls. This is Startup Hand Me Downs, the podcast that passes insights from founders and thought leaders down to the next generation. Today, me and Phil are speaking to London's marketing rockstar, Edward Roth. He's a serial entrepreneur and investor who's racked up 18 industry awards, shed loads of cash, and the respect of techies everywhere by making Moshi Monsters a household name and by bringing laundry into the 21st century with Laundrap. In this episode, we discuss conducting a KPI-centered approach to marketing, the most efficient marketing channels, and how to know when your MVP is ready for launch. This is Pure Marketing Gold, guys. Enjoy the episode. Thanks for coming down, Ed. Yeah, hi. Thank you. I wondered who you were talking about for a second. <laughs> it's me. Brilliant. Yeah. Um, and he's a very humble man, as you can tell. So uh, to start off, Ed, uh, could you give us a, a quick 30-seconds overview over your career path and what got you to, uh, to here today? Goodness, 30 seconds. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> How about 10 and we'll go from there? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, so hi, I'm Ed Ralph. Um, I'm currently the co-founder and CEO of a relatively unknown and very small startup called Laundrap, uh, which is growing incredibly quickly um, here in London and the rest of the UK. Um, but before that, I've been in the tech and digital space now for, goodness, maybe 15 or 16 years. Um, I've co-founded two or three uh, previous companies. In fact, actually, I've co-founded probably about 10 or 20 previous companies. You just wouldn't have heard of them um, because they some of, most of them never really saw the light of day. Um, but my previous role was I was the chief marketing officer and chief commercial officer for um, a social gaming studio called Mind Candy, mm-hmm. um, which was a very successful business. Mm-hmm. And, um, and yeah, I'm happy to be here with you guys. Happy to have you here with us. Um, so I guess just if we, you know, just get straight stuck in, up until Mind Candy, um, you know, you're, you're quite the marketing guru. What would you say up until that point were the lessons that you learned with your time at, you know, um, Codemasters up until Mind Candy? What was, what were the lessons that you've learned? What were the top three lessons you'd say you learned until then? Excellent, thank you. And you've clearly been on my LinkedIn profile, so uh, <laughs> appreciate it. Um, yeah, goodness. Uh, so purely from a marketing standpoint, um, okay, I guess I'll ramble for a little bit. Um, I mean, there are clearly lots and lots of learnings and the industry has changed a tremendous amount, um, particularly over the last kind of four or five years. I think entrepreneurialism and marketing share a number of very, very common traits. Um, so firstly, I think one of the key learnings I had very early on from a marketing standpoint when when looking to set up and scale businesses was that I realized um, quite early on that it tended to be a common pattern with most companies where you know you test lots and lots of channels maybe 10 or 15 different types of channels be it email marketing or 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 uh, paid search or TV advertising or print advertising but it always seemed to be that there were just a two or three channels that just seemed to work mm-hmm. and I couldn't ever really quite put my finger on why it just seemed to be the way and I think one of the biggest learnings um, that I had um, through my marketing career was just taking a very very experimental approach to how to advertise but very very importantly being able to take a very metric driven approach to marketing 
to ensure that you can obviously track all of the key metrics um, and ultimately work out what's profitable for you. And then ultimately you find the two or three channels that work and then you just you double down. Um, mm -hmm. So for example, you know, even channels like TV, if you know what you're doing, you can track them. Right now, for example, you know, uh, I'm running TV advertising. I can tell you what network, I can tell you what minute of the day, I can tell you what day of the week, I can tell you what types of uh, programs will drive the best return on investment for my audience. And armed with that information, it becomes incredibly powerful very, very quickly. So the experimentation bit is, is really important and it's a lot easier said than done because you know I've worked for some very large companies, in fact, some blue chip companies. Mm -hmm. And you know, taking a very uh, experimentational approach to marketing is also probably one of the quickest ways of getting fired. Um, so <laughs> right. it's a, it's a, it's it's not a one size fits all, unfortunately. But I think in 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 in, in the world of startups, I think it's it's something that needs to be embraced. Mm. Um, I guess other coming back, I guess to. Um, I guess coming back to digital marketing for a second, particularly in terms of mobile, which has been somewhat slightly behind, let's call it traditional web marketing, mm -hmm. um, which has been a lot traditionally a lot easier to track. You know, mm -hmm. mobile certainly caught uh, a lot in recent years, but you know, still I find that people get very confused um, around analytics and attribution. And exactly really what attribution really means um, and there are some great attribution tools out there um, particularly for mobile now which allow you to basically segment all of your traffic understand what your lifetime value is for all of your users and be able to basically break that down on a channel by channel basis um, now that's really something that's only been around for the last two or three years in terms of mobile um, but it's incredibly powerful and that's a big learning in terms of making sure that you take that kind of very heavy metric driven approach um, to advertising. Um, I'm sure there's a whole bunch of other learnings and I'm, I'll be happy to in, inject them into the conversation as we go through. Um, yeah, no, that's a super, super start. So uh, throw, throw spaghetti at the wall, see what sticks and measure everything uh, studiously. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> in a nutshell <laughs> um, so you know if we're going to go through your journey or your time at Mind Candy, you know they boast over 20 million users I guess you were around at the time where you know growth was going through the roof was there anything in particular that you think you did or was there anything that you could share with us in terms of you know the two or three um, things that did work for you guys that you stuck to and that you doubled down on was any what were they and, and how did you find those out? Yeah, um, I mean, look, there's no, there's no, there's no secrets, and you know, when when I was at that business, you know, it was it was if you don't mind me saying, it, hell of a lot bigger than twenty million um, registered users. You know, it was it was it was, yeah, a, a lot more, three or four times that number actually. Oh, so it was wow. a, it was a big big number, um, and. Yeah, I mean, none of this is, is, is confidential, you know, presented at many, many conferences, you know, TV was very, very powerful for us. Um, and I have to say, you know, through my career, um, TV advertising has always been a common thread, actually, that's, that's, that's um, connected um, most of the successful businesses that I've worked for. And I think there's a lot of um, misconceptions actually around TV advertising as a channel. Mm. 
and a lot of people um, discount it very very early on because everybody tends to assume it's incredibly expensive mm -hmm. actually TV advertising is one of the cheapest forms of advertising um, put it this way if you're running Facebook user acquisition campaigns for example for, for you know for, for, for a mobile uh, first startup mm -hmm. I can tell you right now TV advertising from a cost per thousand basis it's probably three or four times cheaper um, the problem with TV is the production costs. Mm -hmm. um, it's very, very expensive to, to, to buy into the channel, but once you're in it, it's very, very cheap and can obviously drive explosive growth, um, which is why I'm such a such a such an advocate. Mm. But doing it in a way that's smart and strategic, which is why I was saying about attribution and, and being able to, to measure it. Um, obviously, can't give away all my secrets. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's um, it's uh, that was very successful. I mean, other things as well. I, I mean, you know, connected with Moshi um, and Mind Candy, but but also more broadly, right? Because the, the, there's common threads to most of these things. Understanding the user journey and just being smart with the customers and the people that you bring into your app or service. It sounds blindingly obvious to say that. But, you know, um, I, uh, most people that I talk to, I used to do consultancy and, and I'm a mentor for some startups as well. And, um, you know, you spend all this money on user acquisition, may, maybe three, four, five pounds for a download. Mm -hmm. And then you don't think about what you do with that customer once they come into the app and the service. Mm -hmm. And actually, one of the things that, that, that we've done in my current business, for example, is we've mapped out an entire user journey for like 180 days worth of experience for that customer, right? And you start to then get into the into the world of, of, of consumer profiling, right? So what do you do if a customer downloads your app and they don't open it for three days? That's an obvious one, right? It's a re-engagement campaign. You want to try and pull them in in, in one way or another. Mm -hmm. Traditionally, it's usually a push notification or sometimes an email, mm -hmm. um, but can also be retargeting, right? So mm -hmm. retargeting through Facebook or, 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 or any other digital network, for example. Um, other obvious groups would be, you know, lapsed users, somebody that's placed a purchase, never come back. You know that person has at some point had intent, or not, sorry, not intent, but they've actually gone on to place a, an order or a purchase, and then they've disappeared for some reason. The chances are, you know, they may have tried your service or your product, they didn't like it or had a poor experience. Well, that's an audience you can go back out to and reach. And actually, it's a lot cheaper to try and re-engage with that person than it would be to go out and try and acquire a new person. Mm. I think the other thing as well, and this probably comes back to the first question um, a little bit as well, is just around being smart about how you actually develop your, predominantly these days, your app or, or your service in terms of making sure that marketing is baked into the into the product development process mm. at a very, very early stage. So one of the things, um, and again, I've presented this at conferences, so not, it's not particularly um, confidential. Um, I employ a process, and I call it checkpointing. Um, and essentially what you do is you start with your financial model, and 
most of the answers you're looking for are in your financial model somewhere. So you'll have a concept of, we want to spend X to generate Y downloads, which, which convert into, into, into Z number of purchases at this conversion rate or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so you already have a concept of, of those KPIs and those conversion points, right? Cool. So when you get into developing your product, and in this digital day and age, you're mostly, it's all about that mad scramble to get to MVP, right? Mm-hmm. And then it's a rapid product iteration uh, mm-hmm. process that people tend to, smart people tend to, tend uh-huh. to go through, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and actually what you want to do is you want to overlay those KPIs right at the very beginning. So, so what I've done actually in the past and in the present, um, is start with those KPIs, and they obviously form a funnel through the product or service, right? Yeah. And when you switch that product live, you're tracking those KPIs, and specifically the first checkpoint. And now checkpoint one for your your app, for example, might be getting customers through the onboarding. Mm-hmm. And you'd be amazed, I'm sure you guys already know how many people just don't even bother getting yeah. through the onboarding, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and all you do in the first weeks of launching your MVP is you focus on the first checkpoint, getting customers through the tutorial or the onboarding. Mm-hmm. And that's all you do. And you continue to iterate, iterate, iterate until you get to the point where whatever the KPI is, 90% or whatever, get through. Then you move on to the next part of the funnel. And the next part of the funnel might be, I don't know, a customer adding a product to a basket, or it Mm -hmm. might be their navigating part of the app or something. And then you just focus on that. And then you move on, and you move on, and you move on. Now, in terms of the business that that I'm scaling at the moment, that entire process, we had six or seven checkpoints, um, took us somewhere around two and a half months, basically. But at the end of those two and a half months, You've got a damn near flawless product. Mm -hmm. And at that point, you're ready to scale. And that's a process I've kind of employed at a number of previous businesses and tends to work. The only thing I would say with it is you have to hold your nerve. Mm -hmm. You have to have nerves of steel because you've got an MVP out in the market. You've got a team that want to see advertising. You've got a board and shareholders that want to see growth yeah and you've got to hold it back yeah because the product you know isn't ready and it's not right yeah yeah so it's 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 both good advice but also you need it it comes with the a health warning yeah (laughs) so so a massive caveat so for example what would be the the conversion rates uh i guess you would feel happy with to start uh, your, your your mainstream advertising. At what point do you feel okay? Now it's ready for me to take care. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a good question. Um, obviously, I can't tell you the conversion of my current business, yeah. but um, this is why going back to what I said earlier, the answers you already have the answers because the answers are actually in your financial model. So what makes sense in your financial model? Absolutely. I mean, if your financial model, I mean, financial <coughs> models. I mean, you know. I guess people have different opinions over them, right? Yeah. Some people just look, it's something I have to do and then once I've done it and you've got your investment, it, it you know, it's torn up and you never look at it again. I don't buy into that, right? Mm. If the financial model is 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 done properly, all of your KPIs for your business live in that model and you need to believe in it. 
So for me, all of the models I've worked on, and I'm, I'm not a financial, I'm not a finance person, right? Mm -hmm. um, but as long as it's done in a way where they tend to be marketing-driven financial models these days, right? They tend to start with a budget at the top, yeah. mm -hmm. and the budget converts into a cost per install, mm -hmm. um, which then converts obviously into an install, and then it you have to think about then the customer journey mm. through the app and each part of that journey you're going to have churn right yeah and it might only be 10 percent, 10 percent, 10 percent on six parts of that journey all the way through to ultimately a conversion to a paid user at the bottom um and then a series of retention uh percentages as well right yeah so for example um <clears throat> most people although for my business right now the ironically the engagement piece isn't actually that relevant because um, with Laundrap, it's actually almost like an e-commerce app. Actually, in some yeah. in some ways, yeah. it's like you only go on, you only use Amazon when you're looking to buy something. Yeah. You don't randomly just you don't browse, browse it, right? Yeah. But for most apps, um, because they're driven through engagement, people tend to measure it by you know day one, day seven, day thirty. Frequency of usage. Absolutely. So those would sit in your financial model as well. So. Sorry, it, it probably slightly um, not the answer you're looking for, but but ultimately, as long as the financial model is is done in a in a very kind of systematic way, mm -hmm. considering the customer journey through the service. Um, sorry, there's a dog walking past the door. Yeah. <laughs> Just caught my yeah, it's a very cute dog as well. Thank you. Start some culture. <laughs> Bring your dog to work every day. Um, <laughs> as long as you've done it in that way, then. Um, then, then basically your conversions are right there. But like I said, you know, you have to, it does take nerves of steel. Mm -hmm. You know, for us, for example, you know, we didn't even, I mean, we didn't even formally announce our business until about four or five months after we actually put it live on the App Store. Mm. Um, after you put it on the App Store? Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Like, well, here's another good, or here's another good example, right? And kind of building on the, on what I've already said, you know, um, Every day, probably, I receive maybe 10 or 15 emails from people that are looking for help in one form or another, whether it's consultancy or there's just a question, right? And, you know, I met with a company, obviously, I can't tell you who they are, um, as you'll learn, um, <laughs> about, about two years ago, right? Uh -huh. And, uh, you know, they developed an app, and, um, and uh, it wasn't actually an app that I actually heard of, actually. Um, and, um, you know, I met with them. And uh, it's an impressive app, uh, you know. It's a it's a game, and um, and they told me, you know, look, we're having problems with 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 monetization. Well, mm -hmm. you know, that's ninety nine percent of people. Yeah, so so right. And unfortunately, if I had the answer to that question, you know, I I probably you know wouldn't be here. Uh, <laughs> be, you know, calling, I'd like to I'd like to believe you would be. Uh, yeah, for this I, I would be. For this I would be. I'd make it. I'd make it. An effort for this, um, but but you know they then went on to tell me you know they have this beautiful app. Don't get me wrong, but they then went on to tell me you know and were very very proud that this app had been downloaded, you know five or six million times, which mm. is incredible, right? Mm. Brilliant. Only problem is, it's not monetizing, so you've now burnt five or six million customers. Yeah, that you're never going to get back. Mm. It's too late. It's too late to recognize you've got a problem when you've just acquired that many users mm. 
So I think that that whole checkpointing thing is incredibly important. And this is why I'm such an advocate of baking marketing into the product development process. Mm. Um, and, um, and yeah. And, Sorry, and what, ha what happened to that company? Is it still around? Do you know? Oh, I actually have no idea. Sorry, I didn't. I didn't follow up on the conversation. That was a that was a very quick conversation, right? I mean, you can't help. Unfortunately, you know, you can't help companies like that. It's 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 too late. Mm. Um, you know, you spent a lot of money on user acquisition, um, only to then find out you've got a heap of problems. You can't you can't fix it. Um, so the honest truth is, I, I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, but. Yeah, does that answer the question? It, it yeah, does, no, yeah. Brilliant. <laughs> Good. So, so we spoke about marketing um, and TV being the most kind of effective, in your, in your opinion. Um, so if you were to start a startup today on a shoestring budget, bootstrapped, what kind of marketing activities would you indulge in? Or what, yeah. What, what, so what would be your first steps? Yeah. So, <clears throat> yeah, okay. So I'll, I'll, I'll take the question directly, but let me just say, you know, the current business that I'm working in now, Laundrap, is 52 weeks old last week. Okay. So it's a very young because even like last year to the middle 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 last year, I started seeing huge adverts in uh, in train Everywhere. stations. So I presumed 50, it was I presumed it was like five years old. Yeah, I mean that's a that's a huge misconception, and um, and that's because again, you know, we took our time to get it right. We dripped customers in mm. literally a handful a day just to test the service and track the KPIs mm. before we officially launched and then we're confident to spend aggressively on advertising, right? Mm. So that's the different approach. That's why you believe it's four or five years old because most people do. It's 52 weeks old. Mm. And, um, and in 52 weeks, you know, we've cleaned around a million pieces of clothing. Um, uh, when's this podcast? Aaron, uh, next week. Yeah. It, it, it varies week. my answer. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, by the time this airs, um, we'll be in fifty towns and cities across the UK. Um, so just this week, we launched Manchester and uh, Croydon and Wolverhampton and Liverpool. And, wow. Yeah. So um, so it's scaling yeah, really, 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 really fast. And um, you know we've now raised around four or five million pounds in a fifty-two week period. Really? It's 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 going very very well. Uh -huh. um, so to bring it back to the answer to the question, you know we're still I'm still working in an incredibly young startup, mm. um, and what we did um, and what I would do again, like I say, is focus on those cap like the actual product itself. Yeah. You know took us seven or eight months to, to get an MVP to, to, to market. Wow. Um, and then once we did, obviously it took a number of months obviously to do the testing as I mentioned. Mm -hmm. And when you're in that testing process, right, with that MVP client, obviously it's pretty shaky, right? Mm. The service isn't great, the app will crash, mm. you know, you're, you're probably only on one or two platforms. You know, you're not probably not happy with the branding, etc. but that's yeah. all fine, isn't it? Um, it's all about just dripping users in and getting that feedback from them. Yeah. So in that instance, you know, there are some obvious channels, right? Facebook's blindingly obvious because obviously you can just buy installs, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's highly targeted in terms of the segmentation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's an obvious channel, um, as is Twitter, um, as is even paid search um, to maybe a lesser extent. Um, 
you know, Google mm-hmm. AdMob as well, more, I guess so, for, for Android, um, but it's iOS as well. Those are the obvious channels at the very beginning, just to drip those users in. Because the thing is, right, when you first launch your app, you only need 10, 20, 30 people to download it before you can then start understanding, you know, how they're interacting with the app. So it doesn't have to cost you a, a, a whole heap of money. Um, but, you know, with with, with Laundrap, we scaled very quickly. So, you know, we did London Underground advertising, we did print advertising, yeah. outdoor advertising, TV and email and SMS and push messaging, direct mail. We send uh, we send a physical direct mail piece through the post to all of our new customers. Wow. We have double-sided, like incentivized friend, get friend, kind of like Uber. Yeah. Um, we've done it all, we've done it all. Um, and again, I think, the misconception is all of that stuff has to be expensive. It doesn't have to be at all. For example, you know, you can place a print ad, you know, in a local newspaper um, for just a few hundred pounds, actually. Yeah. And you can put a redemption code on there and you can track the redemptions. Mm. Um, mm. And you'll know very quickly if it works or not. Um, and that's effectively what we've done with every single channel. And uh, this is kind of where we're at now, where we've got three or four things that just work really, really well. And I guess we're ready to scale. The problem is, however, is there's no manual for this, right? Yeah. So if there was, I would have written a book and, um, again, probably wouldn't be here. Uh, <laughs> again, the, I'd like uh, to think you would. <laughs> of course. Of course. Um, but, the, uh, but, yeah, it entirely depends on the business. I would say it's a hell of a lot easier, in my experience, to do it on web first and then move to mobile as opposed to starting on mobile. Mobile represents, even though I genuinely believe mobile is a future clearly mm-hmm. it's also a lot more expensive to develop for mm. um, it's a lot more it's a lot more difficult to prove out the MVP and mm. it's a hell of a lot more difficult to acquire users yeah. mm-hmm. um, than web so um, so you know I've, I've invested in a few other businesses actually that where you know actually they started with web they proved out the, the business first and then moved to mobile and I think that's probably a kind of a smart way of approaching mm. things as well yeah can you give us a guideline of what you've experienced throughout your different businesses your cost per acquisition of say a thousand users is on tv versus um, wow, geez, you know, <laughs> Google AdWords. AdWords. I, I can give you a go goodness me um <clears throat> so App, yeah okay um app installs are, are expensive right i mean you've you've obviously founded a business yourself so i'm not sure if you're running paid user acquisition at the moment um but you know if you take facebook as an example right i mean it really depends on the category the categorization and the targeting will influence everything in terms of the cost per cost per install mm. so for example if you're hyper local and you're marketing a business in London only. Like, for example, it's an on-demand business, kind of like Laundrap, right? When you're only operating in one very, very tight market, even though it, London is a is an incredibly large city, it has a huge impact on the cost per install, regardless of the channel, regardless if it's TV or if it's Facebook or, 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 or even paid search. If, for example, I don't know, you uh, were marketing a, a dating app, it's completely different. It's national, 
um, your target audience is much broader. You know, you might be acquiring user, uh, sorry, acquiring installs for sometimes less than a pound, but mm. more often maybe somewhere between one or two pounds. Mm. But as soon as that becomes London, you know, it could be three, four, five, six, seven pounds. Mm. And the problem you have then is the is the is the return on investment mm -hmm. and the conversion needed for that channel to, to pay for itself. Mm. Um, so yeah, to answer your question, it it well I guess to not answer your question uh -huh. <laughs> um, is is it entirely depends on the targeting, the geography the audience and the type of app it is so I wouldn't even want to try and sound smart and articulate by telling you you know if you do print advertising and you do a, an ad in the evening standard it's going to drive an install for three pounds because the honest truth is it might mm -hmm. but it might be 30 pounds or it might be 50 or it might be a thousand pounds I don't know because it depends entirely on the target and the type of app it is mm -hmm. um, like I say, on-demand tends to be more expensive just because the the, the, the geographic targeting that's required, mm -hmm. um, which is why international, sorry, national or even international, if it's international, goodness me, I mean, you, you can drive the cost per installs down incredibly, incredibly low. Mm -hmm. um, so, and there's other things you can do as well, right? There are obviously lots of tricks. Um, and there are tricks around, you know, using paid search to drive to web and then using your website to convert to mm. the app install. Yes. So there are other ways around the the, the CPI game, right? Mm. Um, because the oh the other thing of course that influences cost per install is the is the is the is the time as well. So for example, you know, if you're launching your business in in November wait until January because December is horrendous mm. for driving app installs yeah. because you have huge uh, uh, huge blue chip companies and brands pouring money um, yeah. into 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 advertising around that time so the time of year has a huge influence as well okay very interesting very interesting so, so thanks for going forward with that with us um, so we're gonna ask you to wear your investor hat now so when it comes to investing, as you mentioned, you do have a few angel investments that you've made, a few companies that you invested in. What is your criteria on judging a candidate? You know, what is it that you look for when you invest in a company? It's a really good question. Um, yeah, okay. And I must stop saying it's a really good question. Usually when people say it's a really good question, it's because I have a very, very well choreographed answer. <laughs> and, in, and in this instance, I do not have a well choreographed answer. Um, so it is actually a very good question. Um, oh, goodness. Um, I would say in terms, of, in terms of me investing in businesses, I am still very much in the early stages. Okay. Um, I tend to make very, very early stage um, seed investments in what tends to be SEIS or EIS legible companies, um, which means they tend to be obviously, well, by the nature, they're very early stage. Mm -hmm. um, and the ones I tend to invest in are ones where I have clearly have a natural affinity to. Mm -hmm. So whether it's gaming or it's, it's, it's consumer app type businesses, where I feel I can actually add some value. Sure. Um, now, I won't lie, I don't have time to personally mentor and meet all of these companies, right? 
actually more often than not, I tend to make my own investments uh, through crowdfunding platforms actually, okay. um, which tends to be a very, very hands-off type of exchange. But once I have made an investment, I always make an effort to then try and meet the team and if I can offer any advice or help, then I, then I certainly will. Mm -hmm. um, but for me, it's the ones I have a natural affinity to just because I understand the market and the dynamics and things. So, you know, I'm not going to start investing in, you know, on-demand hairdressers, not only because mm -hmm. I'm bold, but also <laughs> because I, something I really just don't know too much about. Yeah. Um, so I wish I could give you a, a, a more, uh, a smarter answer on it, but um, no, I really, uh, it's very, very early days, but... I think for me, the valuation obviously has a huge part to play, clearly, as mm -hmm. well. Um, I think that here in London, it's not so bad. You know, in, in the US, the valuations all tend to be maybe two or three times higher than mm -hmm. what they are in, in London and, and in Europe. Um, I think the UK specifically um, is actually pretty much a world leader, actually, in terms of crowdfunding. Yeah. Um, and you know we should be very proud of of, of 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 you know how advanced we are in that respect and I'm still surprised that that, that so many people don't actually do it or they're mm. not familiar specifically with equity based crowdfunding right so yeah. not Kickstarter etc but the equity platforms yeah I mean it, 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 it's a really it's a good way I, I feel of investing mm. your money um, so, and obviously with EIS and SEIS, you know, that's a tax benefit scheme that, that, that's been set up by the government. So it, it, it makes sense for the investors as well as the, the people seeking investment. Um, so yeah, I, I, look, I tend to be quite casual in my approach and um, I tend to um, browse the, the, the crowdfunding sites pretty much every week. If something catches my eye, I exchange emails with the founder. Um, I'll look at the business model. Um, from the business model, I can pretty much see if, if, if it's a realistic opportunity or not. Um, you know, there are clearly some businesses that are going to require many, many, many more rounds, and you have to obviously consider the dilution. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. I'm not, um, you know, I rarely follow on in terms of investment, mm -hmm. um, which means that dilution for someone like me is, is, is quite important. So, again, you know, I tend to make investments in businesses that don't necessarily require you know tens of millions of pounds for user acquisition in the future mm -hmm. um, yeah but that's that's probably about it and what level are most of the businesses you invest in so say if it was an app business when do you think is the right time for uh, what level of MVP should yeah. you achieve before you so I, I I'm, I'm, I'm I could not be earlier stage in terms of uh, in terms Look, I guess it's partly my nature, right? Mm. I love startups and I love creating products. And I love, as cliche as it, as it is, I love the idea of, of, of trying to change the world with something, right? Yeah. Um, and I love the, you know, um, you know we're, we're camping out in my living room. You know, we don't have any budget at all, but we're just scrambling and, and doing something interesting, right? And, and bringing something to market. And I love that. And that's why when I, because I also mentor, I've used to mentor for, for a couple of incubators as well. And obviously, as you know, with, with an incubator, I mean, that's, you, you can't really get any earlier yeah. stage than that. I mean, you know, they, they tend to just find 
interesting people and oft, more often than not they tend to not even have ideas at that yeah. stage mm. and the whole po point of the incubation is trying to match the talent with the idea and that's the stage I'm really interested in because I think that you have to also be honest right I, I feel like I'm the kind of the zero to hundred guy right and I think that um, I think for me it's that it's that whole camaraderie and the spirit and the and the us against the world thing mm. is, the, is the thing that I have a natural affinity to. Mm. So that's the, that's tends to be the stage where I'm kind of most interested. So even less in the product, you, I guess you're more interested in the founders, the team, the culture, the, the vibe they have going on. Yeah, I think so. I, 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 yeah, you know, I met uh, a couple of guy. I mean, I can't say who, but um, you know, I'm just one of a, a handful of typical meetings I'll have. You know, I met a couple of guys recently um, that had just decided to quit university. Um, they live overseas, um, somewhere else in Europe, and they decided, you know what, we're just going to quit and we're just going to move to London. Mm. And um, they were living in an Airbnb and they're running a business out of an Airbnb. It's mm -hmm. it's unbelievable, right? Yeah. But but I admire that passion mm. and that self-belief and that... Obsession almost. Yeah, I think so. And um, it's something that I feel I have and actually in my early, early career was stifled by working in large corporate businesses. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I kind of feel now coming out, out of that experience that I've got hell of a lot of catching up to do. Yeah. Now we we hear the uh, a lot of similar things from people who, who have worked in um, large blue chip blue chip organisations before. Yeah. It's the same uh, drive later on in life to to start even more businesses to make up for the lost time uh, early on. I think so. Um, you know, I remember quite vividly a moment where. Um, sorry, we have an event going on. Here. <laughs> yeah, it's all going on. Dogs, dogs and events. Um, you know, you 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 work in a very large business, and you know, I don't know. I remember one time, you know, I had to book a flight somewhere for a meeting. It was kind of last minute, you know, and it had to be approved by six people in six different departments in a in a five thousand person Ooh. office. Wow! And it's and it's it's those moments that you realise that it's it's. Well, actually, I should say, thank goodness for companies like that because mm. it's companies like that that keep people like me in work. Mm -hmm. because it's people like us that, that, that are creating these we're the speedboats to their oil tanker yes. right yeah. um, and, um, and if I wasn't already passionate at that point I'm, I'm infinitely more passionate about startups now having gone through that experience um, unfortunately I have a, a wife and children and uh, you know and, uh, and a large mortgage these days so unfortunately yeah. I can't be quite as uh -huh. as, as speedy as you, you as can't I'm go like, live in an Airbnb and just a quick one so would you invest in a single founder or do you look for or does it not matter to you oh that's a that's a good question and uh, not because I have a choreographed answer <laughs> um, it is um, yeah I do you know I haven't but I think I would um, I I um, probably quite obsessive in and methodical in, in in a lot of ways actually and uh, when, uh, when I was very young actually uh, 
well, in fact, you know, I, goodness me, I mean, I was actually very entrepreneurial even at school, but I just didn't, I guess there wasn't a word for it. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And, um, and, uh, and yeah, there's a whole bunch of stories there, but, um, the, and I've just completely forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> Brilliant. Sorry, we, can, <laughs> we, can, we can come back to it. It was obviously that interested. Yeah. Um, sorry, what was the question? Single founders. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Um, so, um, yeah, and what I decided to do was I decided that, um, you know, I was meeting lots of really interesting people. And, you know, you meet someone interesting, you're like, hey, you know, kind of like you guys, you have a really good conversation, you seem to have a rapport. And I decided just to keep a list um, one day. And that list ended up becoming like this kind of CRM database, right? Mm. And later on in life, what I realized was I probably invented LinkedIn, but it just didn't have a name. <laughs> yeah. um, and, you know, today there's about 40 or 50,000 people on that list, right? Yeah. And, um, and it meant that actually in my last bunch of companies, hiring was actually very, very simple. Sure. Mm. Um, and the reason I'm saying that is because actually, you know what? If I met, and I do meet individuals actually that, that I think are really interesting. I could always match them with other interesting people. Um, but I do know that it is a struggle as a solo um, entrepreneur because investors do see them as a risk. Yeah. Mm. Um, so, you know, I'm, I probably go against the grain in that respect. I know having lots of friends that are investors, they would always advise, advise solo entrepreneurs to team up with two or three people because that's just what investors are looking, looking, uh, expecting to see. Mm -hmm. Cool. Gotcha. And to start rounding up in, um, in fear of the event getting very loud, <laughs> um, what scares Edward? Um, <clears throat> Well, firstly, the word Edward, because it's usually only my mother that calls me that. <laughs> so, uh, so that's uh, so that's that's a good start. Um, it's a yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I think I scared you too much. But yeah, I think you have. Uh, uh, no, actually, there's a bunch of things that scare me, uh -huh. and um, I think the biggest thing is the sense of wasting time or mm. running out of time yeah and um you know not in a kind of crazy way but in a kind of like a as i think as you get older and you know you settle down you have a family i have two very young children now and you have a lot more responsibility mm. you know for me i've still got a huge amount i want to achieve Mm. And, you know, I know that I kind of have to try and do that in the next kind of 10 or 15 years or whatever that time frame may be. Yeah. So that sense of wasting time is definitely the biggest thing that scares me to the extent, you know, where I find it even, I wouldn't say difficult, but, you know, it takes a lot for me to go to the cinema as a good example, right? Because my mind is constantly ticking over yeah. in terms of what are the 15 things that I really need to do or what are the three or four great business ideas I've had today. Yeah. Um, and, um, and yeah, I mean, you should probably interview my wife and she'll probably testify as well <laughs> to that point. Super. You sound like yeah, every book I read on Elon Musk or... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, yeah. Yeah. You remind me a lot of um, what I read about him. I'm a... I'm a yeah I'm a big reader as well actually and um I love uh I love books and we were talking before the 
recording yeah. about the you know four hour work week and yeah. all the other great books and uh, a big reader. So I, I wonder if somewhat to some extent I'm a I'm a, a product of, of all of that reading. Yes, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. But, um, no, but yeah, most maybe. definitely. Yeah. What are your yeah. top three books? Uh, well, definitely the Four Hour Work Week. There's no, there's no doubt about that. Um, the Lean Startup is incredibly cliche, obviously, yeah. but um, it's still a great read, and I've read it three times. Mm. Um, actually, there's a, there's another book, um, uh, the Rich Dad Poor Dad series. Mm. I have to say, I, I found exceptional, um, and um, and it completely changed the way I manage my money. Actually, mm. Um, mm. for the better, I should say, um, and a whole bunch of other books. Can't even remember. Cool. cool. And to finish off and bring it back round circle, um, if you were to do it all again, what would you do differently and okay. why? Okay. Well, firstly, I will be doing it all over again. <laughs> and many, many, many more times, hopefully, in the yeah. future. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I were to do it differently, <clears throat> what would I do? Your, um, your journey, as in, so if you could oh, go back to your 20 year old self. Oh, that's very easy. That's oh. very easy. Hmm. So, um, yeah, so I did the classic, um, I did the classic thing. I actually, I was a, when I was 12 years old, I used to program video games, right? So I hmm. always wanted to be a programmer. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> and and um, the, um, the, I went to university and actually we, there weren't, uh, when I went to university, although I'm not actually that old, um, there weren't really such things as um, game development uh, mm. courses, right? Mm. So the closest I could find, because I wanted to stay in my hometown, which was Bristol, was uh, graphic design. Go figure. I, I, I can't make the connection. But very close, yeah. yeah that's, oh, almost. <laughs> that's so, uh, so I went to study graphic design, and um, there was this kind of realization six months in. I was the first person in my family to go to university, so kind of a big deal for my family, right? Yeah. Mm. And uh, this moment about six months in on that course, I realized that, you know, being a graphic designer is quite an art, <laughs> quite an art. And mm-hmm. um, I realized that t- probably five or 10% of the people in that course were just insanely naturally gifted. Yeah. And the other 90% were just trying their hardest to catch up. And yeah. I unfortunately was not in the, in the, in the 10%. And also I found myself incredibly frustrated actually. Mm. And I didn't realize it at the time, but I was ready to just do something. And, you know, um, whether it was me selling conkers at five years old in the school playground or painting Warhammer figures and selling them on eBay when I was you know, uh, uh, 16 years old uh-huh. or whether it was the school canteen that I set up that basically almost put our... Um, I set up a school tuck shop and um, it almost put our uh, secondary school canteen out of business. Uh-huh. So our headmaster had to shut us down. Uh-huh. Um, That's so, what an accolade. So these 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 entrepreneurial things happened through pretty much all of my childhood. And when I got to university, I felt very very frustrated and quite constrained. Mm-hmm. Um, so I left, and uh, and fortunately, kind of by fluke, actually more than anything, fell into the games industry, which was my passion from yeah. from from very very early on. Um, and that's a very long-winded way of basically um, leading up to the answer, which was, I feel if I would, should have do, done this again, I should have started earlier. Mm. And, you know, for me, I really got into into the world of startups probably only 
six or seven years ago mm. in its current form. Yeah. And to some extent, I wish I had started maybe when I was 24, 25 years old, right? As opposed to 29, 30 years old. Mm. Um, so, you know, I've been, I've, been, I've been trying to catch up ever since. One thing I would say, though, is that it did allow me to work in three or four companies and get a lot of experience because I do meet also a lot of founders um, and people that consider themselves entrepreneurs, right? But they've never run a business. Mm. Um, you know, they've never fired somebody or they've never had to build a finance team or they've never had to, you know, rent an office and they'll just call themselves an entrepreneur. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I don't have a big issue with it, but I am a big advocate for people getting experience, learning from that experience, making a whole bunch of mistakes and then doing something. Yeah. And if anything, it means that you can also make a bunch of mistakes on somebody else's dime yeah. as opposed mm. to your own. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I don't know if there's any right or wrong, but I kind of feel like, yeah, I probably should have founded a company probably a little bit earlier um but who knows i i i, I may have had no experience it could have been a huge disaster and, and, and who knows um I, I guess the thing that's most important is that you know i'm here today um i i'm healthy i have a great family yeah. um i have a good life and um you know i've got a successful business so i guess ultimately it kind of worked out one way or another yeah it worked out very well didn't it very well well We'll see. <laughs> yeah. We'll see. Story remains. See. <laughs> right. Super. Yeah. Thanks for coming down, Ed. That was a super, super um, expert session on, on marketing and picked up so much. So um, thanks uh, again, guys, for listening. Thanks, Ed, for coming down. Thank this you. This has been Thank Ranbir, Phil, and Ed. Uh, tune in next week for another episode. And bye-bye. Cheers. Hope you gained a lot from this marketing masterclass, guys. To summarize, the main points we learned were 1. Create a financial model for the product that provides a roadmap. 2. Test KPIs, that's key performance indicators for the app to optimize the user journey. 3. Once the journey is optimized, test different marketing channels and find ones that are profitable according to the financial model. And last but not least, when you've done all the above, you're ready to scale. Thanks for listening guys and see you next week.